what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Beryl Dickinson Dash was never supposed to be in the competition to begin with. For one thing, she hadn't actually entered. Beauty contests weren't really her thing. She was more interested in her academics and never considered herself exceptionally beautiful. Side note, she was and is. So running in McGill University's annual Carnival Queen competition wasn't really on Beryl's to-do list. And yet, there she was. I mean, I was shocked when I opened the McGill newspaper that we had and saw these girls are running for Carnival Queen. I thought, how come my picture's there? Okay, apparently, while Beryl had no intention of running, her boyfriend's roommate, a guy named Leighton Hudson, yeah, he had a different idea. The way the contest worked, you had to submit a picture and get signatures, and they did that without me knowing. As a matter of fact, he did it without even my husband-to-be knowing. He just saw the picture I'd given him for his birthday and took it and got the signatures and presented it. To enter the pageant, you needed 25 signatures from, ahem, male students. Leighton, he got all 25, all without Beryl's knowledge. Okay, so why? Why go to all this trouble? At first, to me, it kind of sounds like he was in love with her. But that's not the reason Leighton gave. It's that he wanted Beryl to be seen. Beryl is black. Leighton, too. The year was 1949, and McGill's Carnival Queen was voted on by the majority white student body. As a black woman, Beryl didn't even know if she was eligible. But she was. I'm AC Rowe. This is The Doc Project. It's hard to think of beauty pageants as progressive spaces. Sure, the contestants are often accomplished in other ways, but they are still standing up there being judged on how they look. For Beryl, that was kind of the point. That how she looked should land somewhere between not mattering at all and being celebrated. We started working on this episode a few months ago. And in the past two weeks, Beryl's story has taken on fresh urgency. As I'm speaking to you, a Black Lives Matter rally is gathering at the primary school across the road from me. Little kids, their parents, their teachers, all fighting for things they shouldn't need to fight for. Safety, dignity, a future, and rights to the same opportunities as their white classmates. It's all part of the same struggle that Beryl became a symbol of hope for 70 years ago. Producer Julia Lipscomb is going to take it from here. When Beryl discovered she was running, or being run, in the Carnival Queen pageant, she was going to say no, back out. And she said as much to her mother. 
told my mother, I said, oh, I'm not going there to make a fool of myself. Oh, you paid your fees, you're going. (laughs) So that's how it went. It was her mother's insistence that Beryl belonged as much as any other girl that made her go through with it. But she had good reason to be hesitant. You know, it was very prejudiced at that time. They thought you had a job and then you didn't, when when they saw you, you didn't have the job. I mean, we had a quota for how many blacks that were admitted, how many West Indians were who were admitted, how many people from Africa were admitted, you know. We weren't welcome everywhere, you know what I mean? We all stayed in one little bunch to have our lunch and stuff like that. So I thought that would be ridiculous. Who's going to vote for me? That, you know, that was the feeling because there weren't enough of us there. In total... 26 young women got the 25 signatures they needed in order to run, and to Beryl's shock, she was one of them. And so the race for Carnival Queen began. My mother told me, I'm going, you're going to the tea. We're going down, you're going to go get a little outfit here, and you're going to go to the tea. The tea. A ceremonial tea party. The contestants were interviewed by radio stations and judged on their ambitions, versatility, personality, and, of course, their looks. Right away, they cut it down to about, I think, there, were, there was about 18. And then the people from the radio kept going around one by one, kind of interviewing us and asking us our goals and stuff like that. And then it was 11. Among Beryl's competition, two local models and an Australian woman whose father was the high commissioner in Ottawa. Not exactly an amateur field. And at the end of the day of interviews and tea and tiny cakes, Beryl got another shock. Out of the 26 semifinalists, she was chosen as one of the five finalists to be McGill's Carnival Queen. To understand just how big this was, you first have to understand how big a deal Winter Carnival was at McGill. It was a massively popular four-day event that brought students out by the thousands to one of Canada's most famous and prestigious universities. Carnival Queen wasn't just a beauty pageant the way we think of them now. It was more like prom queen meets student ambassador. And while a great deal of attention was paid to the girls' beauty, this was a winter carnival thing. It was Montreal in the dead of February. They were always wearing winter clothes. So it's not like you ever saw them in shorts, let alone bathing suits. The student who won was respected as a representative of the whole school. The election of the Carnival Queen, it was serious business. Each finalist was assigned a campaign manager. It was voted on by thousands of members of the student body. There were voting booths and scrutineers. It was a weeks-long campaign to determine who would be the Carnival Queen and who would be relegated to her four princesses, or ladies-in-waiting. Beryl, confident but down-to-earth, wasn't too fussed about the whole thing. But Leighton and Beryl's boyfriend and future husband, Dunbar Rapier, and the people around her, they started rallying. I kept saying, oh, what, what, what are you guys doing? I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm going to be one of the, the ladies in waiting, and that's fine. And I remember I was very friendly with these two Jewish guys in my English class, and it was a big class, and he would say, economics class, rather, and he would say to me, oh, he's got to start coming in late. I said, why? He said, so people know who you are. I said, oh, I don't do that. Beryl's circle sprang into action. They orchestrated a full-fledged and cheeky campaign. Dunbar's brother was in commerce at the time, 
and would send these clever telegrams to the university, posing as corporations and organizations. Here's a couple of examples. Press dispatch. U.S. Marines vote Barrel Dash the girl they would most like to take on a slow boat to China. Another one. Institute of Chartered Accountants vote Beryl Dickinson Dash has figure we would most like to audit. Stop. You get the idea. Excitement on campus started to build. The guys were campaigning, so they got pictures and sticking them in hallways and, you know, different class classes. And, and, you know, some classes were quite big, 200 and 300 people and so forth. But um, of, of my own, I, no, I did nothing. Through all of this, remember, it's easy for Beryl's squad to get excited. Beryl wins, it feels like a win for everyone. But if Beryl loses, well, she's the one in the spotlight. It's her burden. If they asked me to attend something, I did. But I, I was not into campaigning. Because I really, to be frank with you, I thought it was all over for me. Oh, I'm going to be a lady in waiting. That's fine. And that's wonderful. And that, that's the end of me. I, I never, you know, campaigning to win, no. Never in a million years did I ever think that was going to happen to me. But of course, something did happen. Beryl won. And she didn't just win the contest. She won by a landslide. I mean, I was shocked. I was shocked that I got all those votes because, as I said, it was predominantly a white university. And I, I was shocked. I really was. And, uh, and, I, and I think McGill itself was shocked. I mean, I think they were all stunned that it took that corner. The result was actually leaked a couple of days before the formal crowning was to take place. And the exact figures weren't released because it might, quote, injure the other girls. That's according at least to one print article at the time. And why do you think they all um, overwhelmingly voted for you? Perhaps they were tired of how, how things were. I, I, I have no idea. I mean, like, like I said, I broke history. I don't know why. And that's the short version, anyway, of how in February of 1949, Beryl Dickinson Dash became the first black beauty queen at a majority white university. Before we get to Beryl's crowning, Let me zoom out a second here to give us a little perspective on beauty contests and why they really mattered at the time. Beauty contests were extremely common in the post-war period and in the ensuing decades. They were happening on campuses across the country. There was a Miss Grey Cup and a Miss War Worker. There's so many of them, it's almost impossible to actually track the history of each and every one. That's Patrizia Gentile from Carleton University. She's writing a book on the phenomenon called Queen of the Maple Leaf, Beauty Contests and Settler Femininity, that will be out in the fall. Today, we don't necessarily think of beauty pageants as empowering. But this was a time when there were very few spaces that women were allowed to have a voice. In a context where women really didn't have a lot of place, right? And their place was supposed to be the home um, and theoretically hidden away. Here was this platform where they can basically be part of that larger 
narrative around modernity. After the Second World War, Patrizia says that organizers of such contests were increasingly adamant that these were not just about beauty. Even then, they bristled at the idea that they were objectifying their participants. The contests were often attached to scholarship programs. They were strongholds of respectability. And Patrizia says that they were also about something else, which made it all the more amazing that Beryl had broken into their sphere. Beauty contests are about the white nation. They're about exemplifying the values of Canada as a white uh, heterosexual state. The fact that Beryl was actually able to win, especially in McGill, which was a bastion of white elitism, it was a place in 1949. The fact that Beryl actually won is quite extraordinary. On February 18th, 1949, 8,000 spectators gathered at the Montreal Forum to watch the mayor, Camélien Oud, crown the Carnival Queen. Beryl wore a long gown, a rope of tied pearls, and waited backstage. They took a long time for me to come out because I was on was on a sleigh, you know, a kind of built-up sleigh that was going to be pulled by these guys. The four girls were on, on each corner, and I was on the top. But they took a long time. The lights went out and everything. And my mother said she was so scared when I didn't come out for that length of time. She said she thought they were trying to get rid of me. <laughs> but as it turned out, Mayor Hood, who was a very heavy man, he broke one of the steps that, you know, he had to get up to put the crown on me when I would be out there on the ice. So they had to repair that in this interim. So that's why it had taken that time. The broken steps repaired, Beryl emerges on stage to break history. Mayor Oud puts the crown atop Beryl's head shortly after the clock struck midnight on her 21st birthday. A happy coincidence. Beryl Dickinson Dash, a 21-year-old black woman, stands in front of thousands of mostly white spectators. She's flanked by two white young women on each side. Her, ladies-in-waiting. Crown on her head, scepter in hand. And for many in the black community, it felt like the beginning of something bigger. AC here. Coming up, the world responds to Beryl's win and what it all means to her now. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. When Beryl won, there were articles and photo shoots in the Montreal newspapers and Canadian magazines. Time magazine, yeah, yeah. International media was also paying close attention. In fact, American magazines, particularly the black publications like the Pittsburgh Courier and Color magazine, ran with the story even more than the local press did. And the New York Times even ran an article with the headline about the win. The papers called her a gorgeous young co-ed, 
heaping praise on her. They also heaped praise on what everyone, including Beryl's family, was referring to as democracy in action. There was a self-congratulatory tone in the Canadian coverage, even on a campus with de facto segregation and in a city where Black people were relegated to certain jobs only and could not find places to live outside of a couple pockets of the city. There's this other part to all of this that makes Beryl being crowned as Carnival Queen so huge. It's that Beryl was even enrolled at McGill University in the 1940s to begin with. The university was founded in 1821 and is named for James McGill, a man who owned four enslaved black people. Racism was alive and ugly in Canada, but by the late 1700s in Montreal, there were very few people who actually owned enslaved people. And James McGill, the guy whose name is on the school, he was one of them. A smattering of black students attended the school in the mid to late 1800s and the early 1900s, but as the numbers grew, they did not keep pace with the growing black Canadian population. The year Beryl won her title, 1949, there were, at the very most, 150 black students enrolled at McGill, out of a student population of 8,500. But almost all of those were international students. There would have been maybe a handful of Canadian-born black students at McGill, many of them, like Beryl, the children of black railway porters. And among that handful, almost none of them were women. Beryl says she didn't know any other Canadian black women at the school. So how did this actually happen? When you look at the community and family that Beryl was part of, there are a few clues. Beryl was an exceptional student, driven and supported by her activist parents. McGill wasn't cheap, but that didn't stop the Dickinson dashes. My mother, as I said, was very enterprising. And when we went to the, now you know, I'm losing kind of words. I'm kind of old now. The purser to pay your fees and whatever, my mother said, well, I can't pay all in at once. You'll get it in installments. She just made it, and he just was so shocked. He just wrote it down, took her installment, she paid it, and that's what it was. Beryl's parents were Marcus and Maisie. Her father worked at an accounting firm in Trinidad. He emigrated to Montreal in 1925, assuming he'd find similar work there. But instead, he got what Beryl calls the shock of his life when he discovered that as a black man in the 1920s, there was only one job available to him in Canada, Porter on the Railroad. He took it and sent for Beryl's mother. They married, and Beryl was born in Montreal in 1928. My, both my parents, I must say, always were for the underdog. They always worked, helped. And my father on the trains, and because um, they were both educated, so um, both my father and mother helped people. And my father, particularly after he worked on the trains, he became, you know, help with the union guys and guys who were... There were prejudice things happening in on the trains. My father would help them with the letter to, so they wouldn't lose their job and stuff like that. I don't know how that started, if he, if he met Philip Randolph before he came to Montreal or he... A. Philip him. Randolph was a civil rights and American labor movement leader from Crescent City, Florida. He started the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the USA's first African-American union. He encouraged Beryl's father, Marcus, to head up the Canadian version. Beryl's parents were activists in Montreal's growing black community, then with a few thousand members. Her dad earned his living as a porter, working the club car between Montreal and Hamilton. 
but he eventually became secretary-treasurer of the Montreal Local of the Brotherhood. It wasn't activism necessarily that got Beryl into the Carnival Queen contest, but it seems resistance, a willingness to be seen, was in her bones. And that sense of belonging, long instilled by her parents, no doubt helped her thrive in the university setting where there weren't a lot of girls like her. And the fact that Beryl was in Montreal may have also had something to do with her win. McGill might have been an overwhelmingly white school, but outside the campus, black art and black activism was burgeoning. Montreal in the 1940s and 50s was a really a, a epicenter of black culture in not just Canada, but I would say North America. Cheryl Thompson is an author and professor at Ryerson University in the School of Creative Industries. She's the author of Beauty in a Box, Detangling the Roots of Canada's Black Beauty Culture. So what you had at that time was a really vibrant nightclub scene. I think one of the biggest clubs at the time was called Rockheads. And a lot of really huge jazz musicians from the U.S. would have played at these clubs that were Black-owned, English-speaking. And again, they're also intimately connected with the railroad. That was a huge port where... Mm -hmm. People would have been coming in and out of Montreal from the U.S. So, the effect that the title had on Beryl's life. It just mushroomed into something that I didn't ever expect it. There were hundreds of letters from around the world. And some of them were just to congratulate me and how they feel so great. There were the marriage proposals. I mean, I don't know how you propose to somebody you've never met, never saw. Guys overseas, guys from Africa, all over. There was the two-week trip to West Virginia sponsored by Color Magazine. There was a painting of Beryl at West Virginia's state capitol done by internationally renowned artist William Edward Scott. The painting was named Spirit of Democracy and was presented to McGill as a token of appreciation from the people of America. And while it might seem over the top now, it wasn't. Segregation and Jim Crow were so entrenched in America. And the Canadian Queen's win was a glimpse of something hopeful. And the interest in Beryl didn't end with her reign as Carnival Queen. There was prolonged interest in her life for years, especially from American media. Her wedding in the summer of 1950 to Dunbar Rapier, the same boyfriend whose roommate Leighton entered her in the Carnival Queen contest, was covered by the papers. They reported on the huge crowds inside and outside the church. The articles covered every last detail from the flowers she was carrying, calla lilies and orchids, to the colors her bridesmaids wore, aqua, lilac, powder blue, lemon yellow, pink, and apple green. It was news when Beryl and Dunbar moved to Edinburgh where he'd go to medical school. And there was even a photographer waiting for her when she got off the boat in Montreal upon her return. Beryl was a sensation. The years rolled on. Beryl's husband did his medical internship in Montreal for a year. Beryl gave birth to twins. They moved to Edmonton for several years and then Calgary. And Beryl remained unafraid to stand out. When her four kids were grown, Beryl and her husband split up and she moved out on her own. One Calgary winter night after her shift at a department store, she couldn't get her car started. She went in the next morning and told her boss, I'm not going to be here next winter. I'm giving you notice. She wasn't kidding. The following October, she moved to California on her own, where her sister lived. 
She started a new life where, her son Bradley tells me, her home was always a hub of activity for family, friends, and community. I wish this was a story about how Beryl's win was the beginning of a larger movement towards Black prosperity, equality, and visibility in Canada. But as we all know, it hasn't quite worked out that way. For example, let me take you back to McGill. I reached out to an equity education advisor. She told me the school no longer collects demographic data on race. So we don't know how many students at McGill identify as Black. But a 2019 story about the university's inaugural Black grad says that approximately 40 Black students graduated from McGill that year. So while we can see many examples of Black excellence at McGill over the decades, and many instances of progress in the years since Beryl won her crown, we are still fighting for systemic change. Across our country and around the world right now, people are protesting the police killing of an unarmed Black man and fighting for the kind of equality that white people have been apathetic about for decades. But I'd like to offer a shred of optimism in an unlikely space. There's something interesting happening right now in the world of beauty pageants. Right now, four of the world's biggest beauty titles are held by Black women. Miss USA, Miss Teen USA, Miss Universe, and Miss World. And up until late last year, that list included Miss America as well. It was the first time in history that all five major title holders were Black. This is exceptional because of the narrow Western view of beauty that has dominated for so long. Centuries of racism and colonialism have exalted fair skin and straight hair. There are, to this day, policies at schools and workplaces around the world that discriminate against Afro-textured hair. So for Black beauty to be celebrated in the mainstream, it's a long time coming. And representation is so important. By today's standards, it's strange to look to pageants for progress. But pageant historian Patrizia Gentile says, not necessarily. What if participating in pageants was an act of protest in and of itself? I'm not entirely sure that it's also just about, oh, look how beautiful we are and look how wonderful we are. I think it's also part of this tradition, whether it's formalized or communicated or conscious or of protest, right? That the beauty contest could also just be, also, could be seen as a platform of responding to this historical understanding of which body gets to be understood as the belonging body, right? The white, elitist, middle-class, wholesome Canadian idea of the, 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 the beautiful body, so all these participation of, of people of color in beauty contests might be a continuing response and conversation to, wait a minute, we're here too, and we're going to use this platform in our way. But Cheryl Thompson, she cautions us to think critically of what we consider progress. So for me, you want progress? Let me see who's running Miss America. Like, who, you know, who is running and owning Miss America? Like, who is running and owning Miss Universe? It's fine to put the face. It's like the illusion of inclusion. It's like, so you see the face, so you assume that, that there's like this huge monumental change. But meanwhile, in the structure... Everything is exactly the same. You live long enough, you, you experience everything. <laughs> <laughs> Beryl is 92. She lives in Las Vegas, where she's been for three decades. 
She tells me she does not regret the move. Beryl is in great health, and she wants me to know she doesn't take any medications. And she drove herself to the NPR affiliate studio. I feel very fortunate. I feel very blessed. She is humble and matter-of-fact about her legacy. She doesn't think of herself as a pioneer. Well, I don't, but my kids do. I don't. (laughs) The thing is, if Beryl had her way, we wouldn't be talking about her at all. Because it wouldn't matter who won a beauty contest. While she's keenly aware of the prejudice that still exists in this world, she's also damn sick of it. Beauty pageants still aren't Beryl's thing. And she's more concerned with Black representation in the workplace or in politics. She does have hope in the younger generations. I think um, kids stand up more for the underdog. But she thought that by 2020, we'd be well past celebrating Black beauty queens or even a Black president. Because equal representation would be the rule, not the exception. I just think, I just hope we go forward. It shouldn't be a big deal. Whether you're black or white or Spanish or Chinese or whatever, and you enter something and you win, it shouldn't have to be taken out, so blown up like that to Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It should be an everyday occurrence because we're all in this country or world living together. That doc was produced by Julia Lipscomb. It was edited by Julia Poggle with me, A.C. Rowe. Special thanks to Tanera McLean for consulting on this story. We have archival photos of Beryl from 1949, the evening of her crowning. They're on our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. There are two books you heard about in today's episode. They were Queen of the Maple Leaf, Beauty Contests and Settler Femininity by Patrizia Gentile. That one will be out in the fall. And also Beauty in a Box, Detangling the Roots of Canada's Black Beauty Culture by Cheryl Thompson. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Kevin Ball, and me. Althea Manassin and Tahiat Mahboub are our digital producers. Our senior producer is Julia Poggle. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.